Hello world, welcome to another episode of the Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. My guest today is Christophe Porot. Hi Christophe. Hello, howdy. <laughs> It's so good to have you here. Um, and I'm really excited to learn from you what's an idea that has been helping you live well. All right, should I jump into that right away? Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Well, I'm going to give a sort of poetic response to that that synthesizes a few quotations that have been crucial to my understanding of this idea. But ultimately, I will be expressing a singular idea. And it begins with Nietzsche, who said that you must burn in your own flame, because if you never became ashes, how could you rise again? And I find something about this character of the rising phoenix absolutely sublime. And this idea that we burned the ashes and then come out again on top is something which speaks to my core and which has been something I've adopted throughout my life. And I've adopted it in two senses. The first is this. Charles Sanders Peirce said that just as we say that bodies are in motion and not that motion is in bodies, so too we ought to say that we are in thought and not that thoughts are in us. In other words, thoughts are a kind of home we inhabit. They are a place we dwell. They possess us. We do not possess them. So Descartes was on to something when he said we were thinking beings, because ultimately most people give their life over to one singular ideology or one trauma-based consideration or one thought which governs every decision they ever make, whether it be capitalism or theology or something else. And I seek foundationally a liberty, that sense of transcendence which comes with being able to move between thoughts. So what I've done is I've tested experimentally in the lab of life what it's like to believe in different things and how those different belief structures affect my ability to be a rising phoenix. I'm somebody who spent three years in a mental hospital, so I know what it's like to be down and out. And I've come back. I've made my rise again. I'm now doing my doctoral studies in philosophy. I'm extremely proud of that. And I think that ultimately this way that I consider the stream of considerations that I've just outlined is very simple. We are the dancers of this world. We are the choreographer. We are the dancer. It is our show. It is our time to perform. Nobody can take away the stage. And we have to do what we can to make it a beautiful performance. We will have moments where we're down and out, but that's when you're burning to ashes. And that in itself is a beautiful thing. So I think that Nietzsche line elaborated in the context of liberty understood as intellectual liberty has guided me powerfully throughout my days and is a thought which has shaped my life immensely. Yeah, man. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing. And um, yeah, welcome, uh, fellow Phoenix, because I myself have elaborated before um, on this podcast about my connection to the uh, myth of the Phoenix and, and that figure. And actually, I read Nietzsche, so it only makes sense that at some point I picked up on this line, but I completely forgot it. And uh, so really, thank you for uh, connecting it. Um, and relating it again, because this kind of adds to my whole thing with the Phoenix, but I absolutely love it. And, um, a big believer that in what you say about how we are eventually the people, uh, who are performing here and what we should do should be for our own sake. And we should be the enjoyers of this and we should be the ones responsible for this. And we should be the ones who, um, 
also yeah rise when when things don't go our way um yeah i'm interested to hear maybe a little bit about of your backstory with the struggles because it does sound like for me the the myth of the phoenix definitely came to me as something to hold on to for um yeah um a type of strengthening thing right a support system for me uh, because i was struggling with depression in my case and just understanding that if i go through the hardest thing of my life if i got burned to ashes and i rise again if i do it once i can do it many times um and i'm interested mm-hmm. to hear from you when maybe if you remember when was the first time where this actually became explicit in your mind something about um turning to ashes and rising from ashes oh that's a great question let me give you because you were asking about a big bit of a backdrop to the context of rising from the ashes so why don't i give you a little bit of the scenario in which there's really two two peaks and two falls is that okay with you yeah sure So basically, I'm very transparent about my life with everybody, but I also like to give a warning that it's a somewhat dark story at the origin, even though it flowers and blooms wonderfully by the end. And the dark origin is this. Look, when I was young, I was unfortunately a victim of forced sex as a child, and this controlled my emotional life to a significant degree, to a point where I was discarded as somebody who was merely irrelevant while I was in school, somebody who was predestined to go to prison, somebody who had no chance at acquiring academic or other types of success. And this caricature of who I was going to become intimidated me to a degree that was so real for me that I underperformed and I could never achieve my own potential all the way out through the end of high school. And uh, then right after high school, I was just good enough to go to a college, a small liberal arts college in Minnesota. And right after, within my first two years there, my mother died. And the death of my mother actually incited in me an incredible fury of ambition because I wanted to prove that she was always right, that everybody who doubted me was wrong, and that her dreams, which were almost uniquely about what her children could become by the time she died, because she had forfeited her own dreams when she knew that she was facing the end, would be realized. She would never have to you know, lose sleep or lose rest over the idea that her son was unable to achieve the goals that he had for himself. So I rose, that was my first time rising from the ashes is actually the death of my mother, which was so disturbing that my own version of denial compelled me into great success. I ended up going to Oxford uh, to study philosophy. And then I went to Harvard after that, where I spent one year in the philosophy department. Then I went over to the divinity school, acquiring the Dean's fellowship along the way. And that was the peak. That was the, I've achieved the dreams my mother thought I had for myself. And then because I achieved it, the denial ended. And I broke Hmm. to a point that was so catastrophic. I went into a depression so bleak. All my trauma and the trauma of losing my mother controlled every single element of every breath of my life to a point where I lived in nothing but fear. I had tremendous weight gain. I had tremendous inability to cope. And I was this burst into a manic episode because my amateur theory is that mania is essentially an attempt to resolve depression by releasing all the dopamine at once, which leads Mm. to euphoric experiences. And what's hilarious about it is while depressed, I was as delusional as it gets. 
But nobody would acknowledge that because they said, oh, yeah, you hate yourself or you think you're not important unless you achieve great things or you think that you're unworthy. But we all think that. The moment I became manic and I thought, no, I'm the greatest thing there ever was. Everybody's like, well, now, now, now you've got a problem. So there's something characteristic about the delusions of depression, which are culturally acceptable while the delusions of mania are rejected. And because I turned into somebody who had a manic episode, I was involuntarily hospitalized by way of police force taking me in, in Los Angeles, the LAPD, they pulled their guns out and everything. It was not a fun experience. And I, after a few hospitalizations in the US, which were definitively unenjoyable, I got on a plane during a manic episode. I went to Asia and I was in Malaysia, the Philippines and Indonesia, where I was hospitalized again in Indonesia. There they were, it's kind of considered a human rights crisis, the way they treat mental health patients in Indonesia. Right. They chain you up, they tie you to beds, they punch you, they choke you out. They did all of this to me as well. And uh, eventually through a lot of diplomatic work, uh, literally diplomats getting involved, there was an arrangement made because I'd given away my passports where I could go to France, but the French government was unwilling to release me from the hospital for two and a half years till they were sure that there would be no more episodes and that I was stabilized. And after that time of dwelling within an institutional life, there were a lot of folks who gave up on the possibility that I could make a comeback. And I'm one of the only people who didn't. In fact, I read so much philosophy and I wrote so much. I even published some papers while I was in the hospital that I knew I would be making a comeback. And so the second time that I rose from the ashes was in the past year when I started my doctorate at the Sorbonne, when I continued onward to keep publishing, to keep working as I work, to do what I love doing, and to know that I've got a future in the very activity that brings me the deepest joy. So I've risen from the ashes twice. First, as a form of denial that my mother was actually gone, like her dreams lived on through me. And then once I felt mm -hmm. I'd actualized those dreams enough, confronting the reality of her departure, the great darkness that overcame me and rising again from that. Those are my two Phoenix moments. And if I have to have a third, so be it the trio will come. Yeah, I, I, I love hearing that. And honestly, you've just um, yeah told such a such a story with so many details that it's kind of hard to decide what to um, what to pick at first. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say, you know, for me, I, I see myself as having gone through one of these cycles, because I haven't had a, a second kind of uh, spectacular fall at any point, but I think we, we share the perspective and, you know, to be sure, I'm, I'm very proud of you. Like I haven't gone through anything quite like that at all. It's, um, so that, that is just amazing to hear. And I'm, I'm really happy to, to see you doing well right now. Um, and yeah, I really like the fact that you know, if, if there is a third time, then so be it. This is, this is the attitude that, that really fascinates me because it's so liberating. It's so liberating, it right? How, how many of us are so afraid of the fall? Um, just now I'm reading about, you know, Sam Bankman freed with FTX or something, which is definitely he's having his, uh, falling to ashes moment. And, uh, but anything like that, and most people I think would look at something like that and it's like, oh, he lost his whole world or everything he knew or everything he thought he had. And this is terrifying to most people. I think this is mm -hmm. what motivates people to um, actually 
stay mediocre and play it safe and go through a trajectory, a life trajectory that doesn't include bold moves or entrepreneurial um, endeavors or something like that. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I, I will feels- ask a question to, to end with that. I heard, um, I saw Stephen Fry a documentary about um, bipolar disorder because he suffers from it. And uh, whether to call it a sufferer, I don't know. That's, I guess, up to, to anyone. I don't know what you call it. But uh, people who have been like diagnosed. appropriate term. Hmm? Afflicted seems like a fair term. It's a kind afflicted. of affliction, you know. Okay. And so he made a fantastic documentary about it. And he went and asked famous people and just other people if they would ever um, actually give up, give up both the, the downs of depression and the ups of mania. And I thought the very interesting part was that all of them said, no, I would not give up this, even if I could. And yeah, I'm really interested in hearing from you, what your uh, feeling about this is. Great. Well, Let me comment on a few things because you said a lot of beautiful things and it was very enjoyable and entertaining to hear them. But one of the things you said is, don't worry, I'll ask a question or something to that effect. And I know that you will get to a question, but also it's okay with me if we have a questionless conversation. You know, sometimes there's so much enthusiasm to talk that people just take turns riffing off of each other's points. And there's absolutely no shame in that. Not everything has to be governed by a question, even a podcast. So you are free to just comment and I'll always have a response comment. It's who I am. It's what I do. So feel comfortable asking or not asking questions. Just know that. Sure. We're I'm, ha- in the... I'm happy with that. Yeah. Whatever flows, flows. Whatever flows, flows. We've got a great harmony between us and I'm happy to explore it, whether it be directed by questions or by enthusiastic responses to each other. So yeah. then the second thing is you had asked, uh, you'd mentioned the highs and lows and how so few people, none at all, in fact, would give those up. I would give those up. And I think that's one of the reasons why I have sustained a stability for so long. I'm willing to sacrifice extreme highs and extreme lows Mm -hmm. and have like within a range highs and lows uh, because I find there are pleasures in life deeper than emotions. There's an emotional quality to it, but fundamentally the element of intellectual life, of philosophical life, transcends whatever given emotion you're enduring in the moment. And it brings you into a space within your heart, within your soul, that is so rewarding that it doesn't rely on highs and lows to bring meaning to the experience. It rather relies on the consistent ability to to exact concentrated effort over a singular subject, which ultimately means that you have the inner discipline to go ahead, read four or five hours a day, write two or three hours a day, Think as you walk, think as you run, think as you work out, think as you live, have beautiful conversations and live an entire life decorated by ideas. This is what I believe in. This is why there's an element to me that's so Cartesian because everybody critiques Descartes for overemphasizing the role of thinking. And they say, well, when we let go of thinking, that's when we heal. What does that even mean? As though absence is not a type of thought, as though an emptiness is not a type of thought. That is a clearing. Mm -hmm. That is a type of thought, a sort of openness. So it's impossible for me to imagine what it means to escape thinking. And when you really get to the definitive quality of what we are, we are an assemblage of thoughts and those control us. And Ibn Sina said thoughts have the power to bring you 
recovery or illness. And there's something absolutely true about this. I'll give you one last example because we've had a very open discussion about the role of trauma in life and everything else. I recently in a very therapeutic setting confronted what it meant for me to succeed without my mother being around. And it opened a million doors for me. I all of a sudden started working out again. I started running, walking abundantly, doing circuit workouts twice a day. I'm still in progress, but I'm getting there. Uh, I all of a sudden was able to go ahead and finish my filing to do the doctorate. I was able to allow myself to succeed because there was a thought blocking my physical movement. There was a thought blocking my intellectual movement. There was a thought blocking my material success. So it is absurd to me that somebody would privilege anything above the quality of their thinking. And if destabilization undermines good thinking, that's a strong enough reason to say, look, I don't want the highs and lows. I want, however boring it is, what Epicurus called ataraxia, which is relief from suffering. It's not the presence of euphoria, and it's not the presence of a pain, it's the absence of pain that doesn't invoke necessarily a euphoric or happy state but that is the yeah. ultimate pleasure for for Epicurus and for me well, as well. Literally, yeah, literally, literally, it's um, being without confusion, so unperturbed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I really, I really like that too. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yeah, so that's my long-winded response to your question, and I'm not even sure if I answered your question. I just gave you a response. No, yeah, man, you have. Like you said, it's uh, well, yeah. Who cares what the question was, right? But I mean, it's it, it's it's. Um, I, I really relate with that because I think that in in recent years, and it it's it's not to say anything anti something else, but I love it that it's that it's really um, kind of pulling and therefore widening the whole scope of people looking. I think that working with your intellect and just like spewing more and more and more words about something can be confusing it, it can be used to subvert logic and can be really unhelpful and i think that a lot of people have realized that and a lot of people are talking today about you know maybe let's go a lot more in the direction of um the body listen to the body and and um ho be be holistic in in that regard and it's true like it's all true and good, but I'm really happy that you're bringing up thought again, and yes, and intellectualism, you know, without shame, because I feel like it's mm -hmm. a whole area that has been kind of criticized very heavily in, in recent years, at least. And I again, I can see why, but I completely agree that um, there is a type of thinking, which is thinking well, which I don't think a lot of people actually practice and i really like how you reframe the things to maybe say that you know being in a state of uh, a state that you get to through meditation or something where your mind is seemingly empty of concepts well that is also a thought like let's not uh, deny that and i like it because ultimately it kind of really as i said it just um really broadens the, the, the spectrum of things and make a lot of things possible. And yeah, I absolutely agree that 
about about the highs and lows and the the absence of them i mean personally like i said i've never been diagnosed don't think i am bipolar in any way um but i have noticed throughout my life a tendency to always seek uh stability and sustainability and it's interesting because in our culture it's so boring it's almost something that's just like uh just kill me before mm-hmm. you know my life becomes boring and it's really interesting because people in the name of seeking a lot of novel um adventures to tell about to talk about or to experience the way i see it they resign to um leading lives which are actually quite unchanging and are quite uh, boring to be honest and um they never actually enrich themselves spiritually and intellectually as you say which i think is is actually something that's that's scarce and so i really like you bringing it up because i've been trying to think for myself I've gotten to a point in life where sometimes it's almost it almost freaks me out the fact that I can just close my eyes and really just basically it's something close to hallucination like I can almost hallucinate yeah. just shapes and colors moving around and just be quite happy with with the light show that's going on um that fascinates and, me and I really like it I really like it um and it makes me realize that i almost i i don't need to do a base jump or anything extreme outside of myself and i'm really happy with that in a way and my life on the surface is not that interesting you know i just went to portugal but i went for years without going abroad not doing anything uh particularly spectacular or anything like that um because of imported a lot of that into my own mind yeah Well, let me because I really like what you said. So, let me break down my response into three discrete and quick parts. The first is a commentary on the very condition of living a ostensibly boring life, independent of how rich your inner life is. And I think Flaubert has the best words to capture what that ultimately amounts to. Flaubert has a quote where he says something to the effect of this: "Be boring and unoriginal in your life." so that you can be wild and violent in your work. And this mm-hmm. I've strongly subscribed to. My philosophical mm-hmm. labor is wild and violent. It's what I do, it's characteristic of who I am. I go after everybody and everything that I see a problem with. I don't hesitate. And it looks like I'm just hanging out on a computer or going for a nice walk in Burgundy or whatever I'm doing. But actually I'm living a rich, violent inner life that is amazing. And so the stability that anchors all of it is essential to enabling a certain kind of wilderness. And so once you let that wilderness speak, you discover that something fantastic exists which doesn't require you to drink Red Bull, jump off cliffs, uh expose yourself to high-risk situations or anything of this nature. You yourself are perpetually living on the razor's edge between life and death. And as somebody who's been through depression, you know that how real that is. you are always on the edge of life and death one day yes. it will eventually tilt in the other direction but every day it's a renewed life so go ahead and appreciate that as much as possible that's my first comment my second comment is on the elaborate 
annoying and very popular critiques of thinking. You know, a lot of it is meditation based, even though they in a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists will divorce meditation from its metaphysics, which I find to be problematic. But nonetheless, they'll say things like, well, if you just imagine your thoughts flowing by you like logs on a river, or if you just remember you are not your thoughts and all these things, this is obviously a thought. So my meta-analysis is just to acknowledge how absurdly <laughs> amateur this philosophical reverie is around the anti-thinking process. And what it encourages, I think, is a kind of anti-intellectualism that honestly has caused more harm than good. And I would even contend might be related to the rise of the Donald Trumps of this world because there are so many people who say, well, thinking is, is problematic. So not thinking is the answer. Well, then you got your answer. You know, Trump doesn't think, you know, and I don't want to say too much about politics, but I'm veering <laughs> in that direction only for a moment to give a what I consider an obvious example of somebody who doesn't think, regardless of what you think of him. He just goes with the flow. He is has a Zen as it can be in that sense. So, right. you know, uh, there is this going with the flow, discouraging yourself from thinking. All of that seems to radically challenge what is the beautiful development of life that so many philosophers, poets, hard workers of the mind have cultivated for so long. And with such a rich and vast literature available to us, it is a tragedy that we ignore it for the sake of watching our thoughts flow by like logs on the river, because you can do both. You can acknowledge that distancing yourself from your more immediate thoughts is a way of creating an opening for your more profound thoughts without subscribing to the idea that whatever given thought bubbles up in your consciousness is the most important thing in the world. So there's that. Then mm -hmm. the third thing that I wanted to respond to was very, very simple. And I wanted to say this, we, you are right that there is a danger to thinking. There is a danger to it. But, you know, I consider it in the same way I consider solitude. It's a sword that cuts the fat around your emotions so that you're left raw in either bliss or misery. And that's what it's going to give you, bliss or misery. It almost never gives you the in-between. And by bliss, I have something that's stable in mind. But nonetheless, I qualify it as a type of bliss, you know, this rich inner life, or mm -hmm. it'll bring you into the darkness because you'll ruminate on negative things perpetually. So you're right. Not all thinking is good, but thinking as dangerous as it can be, like so many other dangerous things, has an upswing to it. It has a liberating factor. And I believe fundamentally that Kant was onto something when he said that to be free is to sub follow a law that you yourself uh, generate, because if you can think through what matters in your life and generate a set of laws that you yourself follow and you're obedient only to yourself, even though there's something nihilistic about that and Kant had his own system for how you avoid and end up everybody has kind of the same laws when they use rational faculties or whatever, I'm ignoring the rest of Kant. That part alone, that you're free when you de develop a law that you yourself follow, requires you to think. You got to think about what matters. Zena Hitz in a great book called Lost in Thought talks about the fact that we have a hierarchy of values without which it would be impossible to make decisions. In other words, we all value one thing more than another. 
And because of that, we're able to make a decision from A to B and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. And most of us are blind to our hierarchy of values. But one of her justifications of the intellectual life is precisely that you can put your hierarchy of values into the forefront of your consciousness and assess whether their value is worth preserving or not. So that is my three part, which turned into a four part response <laughs> to your beautiful statements. Yeah, no, I, I really like it. Um, I will say something to, um, you know, to, to hedge a bit, at least from my perspective about uh, meditation and integrate it into something which I think is beneficial together, because I think, I think it's all um, beneficial if, if done right. So I think oh, meditation we have... is amazing. Yeah. Let me just say that really yeah, yeah. quickly. So nobody gets me wrong about this. Yeah. Meditation and prayer have very similar cognitive effects and they are both amazing features of human existence that are very worth celebrating. And when I critique the analysis of what meditation actually is, I am not critiquing meditation itself. I just want this disclaimer. Go on though. Please. Right. Right. No. Yeah. So, so I want to, I want to make the point. I don't meditate regularly anymore, but at least I have a, a good argument for it, which is for, um, meditation and, and dialectic, which is what I do, which is the art of training myself to think well, mm -hmm. are, um, arts that are there to help you and to make you better and eventually instill in you the 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 habits which are good for you which are good mm -hmm. for sustaining health which is you know really what um ethics is all about so ethics literally in greek the um literally just habits or you sound when like a your stoic person to me. Mm -hmm. you sound like a stoic to me well i guess in in some way um but well, literally ethics is just, uh, mm -hmm. things pertaining to, uh, personality or habits because our personality is just the sum of our habits. And so mm -hmm. the science there is what kind of habits are actually conducive to well-being. that that's all that's ethics and, um, thinking is just something which we do, right? It's almost like you can't really close your ears and not hear. Right. So mm -hmm. trying to not do it is kind of, um, is just doomed and still you can do it well, or you can do it poorly just as with, uh, for example, any kind of somatic work, you can be very much in tune with your body and, um, be sensitive enough to feel if something is going wrong with your body, or you can be completely oblivious and you know, find out that you've been really unhealthy for years now, which also, of course, affected your mood, mood and thinking. And meditation yeah. to me is maybe the, the third part of this triad is attention. And attention is really important because we always, by definition, pay attention to something. And there's always something which um, warrants our immediate attention. Uh, mm -hmm. but we can be bad at paying attention to things which are actually conducive to well-being and we can get carried away and pay attention to all the wrong things. And then when we have this kind of terrible situation, which a lot of people are sadly in, which is they pay attention to some small thing, which is actually not a good predictor of doesn't really have to do anything with living well. So usually some sort of potential catastrophe or something, and that's all they're paying attention to. 
and we're not thinking well about it, which results in basically very, uh, very small closed loops of thoughts. So that's that becomes kind of what we call obsessive thought or just relentless thinking. And that gets people to say, oh, I'm, I'm an overthinker. I, I, I really don't mm -hmm. like this, uh, this thing, overthinker. I mean, use a different word besides thinking. Yeah, you're not thinking; you're repeating. I'm an over-repeater, you know, because you're repeating exactly. the it's, same it's, thing over and over again. Exactly. You should be thankful that you have to, the capacity to think that much, but mm -hmm. you probably want to be able to shift your thinking in uh, to make your thinking more creative and to focus it on other things. So you're not an overthinker. You're just a person with a huge capacity for thinking, which is amazing. It's, it's, it's a really good starting point for living, um, uh, for living well. Uh, but you should probably learn what to focus your thinking on and make sure that you're um, thinking well, I think. And that, that's something that, that came up from your uh, points for me. Absolutely. So... Let me preface my reply to you by saying that having spent so much time in the mental health world, I'm very familiar with the concept of being triggered. And I've invented an inverse concept, which I call being uncorked, which is like being triggered in the sense that you kind of, it's, you're like a bottle of champagne that just popped open and everything's coming out, but it's a mm -hmm. positive rather than a negative thing. And I think in mm. your presence, I feel very uncorked. So once again, I'm going to respond to multiple parts of what you said because everything you say entertains me. And I'm actually gonna call back to something you said much earlier, which really fascinates me. So, but it's, you'll see it should blend seamlessly with the rest. The first thing about directing attention, inevitably this becomes quite important, especially as we grow older and older and we have more and more memories to ruminate on. We have to learn how to direct our attention, either in a sense that embellishes our joy, a sense that brings us peace, or a sense that liberates us from the negativity that can control the rest of our lives. So I agree with you. Directing attention, meditative tactics are very useful for that. So too, I always tell people, is prayer. We forget that for a lot of folks, meditation is kind of a bizarre, foreign concept that they're not habituated to in their youth and that they try to adopt later on in life. And I once had a great scholar of Hinduism who I was talking with named Anantanan Rambashan, and he had given so many beautiful lectures about uh, the, Advaita, the Advaita tradition in Hinduism. I told him, I kind of want to convert. And he said, well, just practice it through your own cultural familiarity because you have this disposition in your youth, which shapes who you become. So if you practice things with an adjustment to what you're deeply familiar and comfortable with, you'll practice it mm -hmm. even better than if you go all the way into what seems exotic to you. And so for a lot of folks who struggle to meditate, my suggestion would be do what I do, which is independent of whether or not you believe in God, pray. Because I'll tell you, I've had experiences where, for instance, I've said this to you once before when we had a private conversation, but you know, my great weakness is I sometimes fall in love. And when I fall <laughs> in love, and we'll have great meditations on love in this conversation, I'm sure, but when I fall in love, it can be, it can be overwhelming. And so I once fell in love with somebody who had no love for me. So I wanted to be released from the experience of desiring romantic love so that I could tend to them as a good friend. So I prayed for basically two days straight with breaks for sleep and exercise, minus the exercise, but definitely the sleep. Because uh, this was before I got back in the gym. But I prayed for two days straight. And on the third day, everything felt better. 
all of my romantic desire washed away. I was left in peace. I became a great friend of this person and it was a wonderful experience. So we can utilize prayer in the same way we utilize meditation. So that's one. The second thing I want to say is that you talked about ethic, you know, and about the way it is really a reflection of personality, which is a reflection of habit. And this is like a Greek understanding where virtue ethics is so significant for the Greeks, especially Aristotle. And this is actually exactly what I'm working on my thesis about, which is, you know, for virtue ethics, it goes all the way down to be a loving person or a kind or a patient or a thoughtful person or something like that goes all the way down. And what I'm arguing is that the mystics, especially the Islamic mystics like uh, Ibn Tufail and Avareos and so forth, twisted the virtue ethic a little bit to create something I call imitatio Dei, imitation of the divine, where it doesn't have to go all the way down, but you imitate the attributes of God as a lifelong process, or you imitate them until you achieve apotheosis or assimilation with the divine, in which case, just mm. like Kierkegaard's three stages, which begin with the the aesthetic, you know, the Don Juan and so forth, the man seducing woman mm -hmm. or whatever, and goes to the ethical. And then after the ethical, there's the spiritual. So too, there's something like that for the Islamic mystics, where there's this imitation process of the divine, try to give yourself the divine attributes. But once it goes all the way down, you've achieved apotheosis and you're beyond ethics in a sense. So there is a long wow. and beautiful history to virtue ethics that amazes and stuns me, in which I intend to speak about on December 8th, at a big speech I'm giving at the Sorbonne, which I'm trying to pitch to everybody to come, uh, because <laughs> it's going to be my, you know, just like when we opened up and I said, this is the world is our stage. That's my stage right there. And that's what I'm really excited about. Uh, then the third thing that I wanted to bring up that flows out of the second, because I've opened the door to mysticism already, is when you talked about hallucinating on your own or something like a hallucination. We all have those, and we have them in extreme moments, especially. The, what fascinates me is the literature surrounding guardian angels, that people in life or death situation will say, they hear a voice say, be calm and all will be well. But it's not a voice anybody else can hear. It's just a voice they hear, where they'll feel a presence, like somebody's with them. And this amazes me. They become mystical in extreme situations, even entirely unreligious people. And what fascinates me about that is there are really two options could be us taking care of ourselves, or it could be something transcendent and distinct from us. But that first option, it's us taking care of ourselves, like it's our subconscious vocalizing itself and so forth, means that hallucinations, like hearing a voice that nobody else hears, or seeing something that nobody else sees, which also happens in those extreme scenarios, can be an evolutionary advantage, which might make us rethink how we approach people who are schizophrenic, and hear voices nobody else does. They have overcompensated for something which we all have. And so we put them on a continuum with the rest of humanity rather than break them apart from humanity. So this invocation of hallucinations within your personal experience is something I want to applaud you for doing. And I know it's a callback to earlier, but as I said, I've been uncorked. So I'll be calling things back and picking from random parts of the conversation with my sheer enthusiasm. No, that's great. That's that's really great. Um, yeah, I had a really interesting night with two interesting dreams. The first, we were a group of people and we were walking out on a dead tree that somehow like leaned against something. But it was clear. It was also windy outside, so very unstable. 
and I was um I realized that the wind is going to um make me fall from the tree. So I held on and kind of embraced a woman that was in front of me uh from the back. She was older than I am to protect her and we fell together and just dropped to the ground and we were fine because it was from very high up so not mm-hmm. realistic in that sense but this is also interesting because as you're going to see with the really the second part of this dream and the other dream they were not realistic but they were not realistic exactly in the way to give me something that is catastrophic but get re- gets resolved in a in a safe and and good way so mm-hmm. i managed to somehow break the fall and save her and made sure that she's fine but then i mm-hmm. saw uh somebody else's baby and not my baby and um not my 4-year-old daughter which i'm grateful for because i was thinking later like i wouldn't have been able to deal with that somehow but i saw mm-hmm. a, a different baby like falling off like from way up high alone and i knew that he he was not going to survive and the whole atmosphere with the people around me it was it's just tragedy just was very clear what happened um and i felt in myself that for some reason usually i'm very good at immediately responding with whatever emotion is is fitting uh i did not because it was not my baby i did not immediately break down in tears or sadness or something like that but i was kind of confused and then after a few moments in the dream it kind of dawned on me and i started crying because this young um boy had lost his life and just as i did that you know there was a kind of twist that where he was fine after all and you know go figure mm-hmm. but um but it was it turned out fine so two things that's one dream two things that were not going to end well they ended well and then the other dream is me my wife and my kid um just looking at a rocket that comes our way like a, a mm-hmm. ground to ground rocket and fearing for our lives for a moment and then you know i realized that it was going to fall far enough away for us to to come out unscathed so the moment i understood this and saw the trajectory i lost all fear because i knew yeah. it wasn't going and if you understand something you don't fear it anymore that's the rule i mean people who fear bees right is like there's a bee in the room clearly as you as you as you mentioned like they're not thinking they're not taking on they don't have a good concept of what a bee is because if they did they knew that bees have no business just stinging you for no reason so right. there's no reason to fear what you understand um mm-hmm. but anyway these two dreams have really caused me today to think a lot about how um these catastrophic events and the fact that they played out in my mind this has to do with the fact that i watched a youtube video about uh the books of daniel and um and revelations in the bible mm-hmm. so both in the old testament and the new testament there's these um what we call apocalypse literature i'm sure this informed my dreams um but it was very interesting that this is where my mind went to these extreme situations that you know miraculously in my dream 
ended well and um yeah i don't know i i feel like it it connects to to what you were saying um and i'm trying to think if it connects in any way to uh prayer or something like that and i think it does because this is where my attention went and i really like what you say about um prayer because it is focused right and if you look at transcendental meditation where you start with a phrase and you repeat it over and over mm-hmm. um we think that these things are um very far apart like meditation and prayer or meditation and dialectic which is done through speaking words but then you learn about um there is actually a a meditation school and i can't remember the name i can't remember where i encountered it but apparently there was a meditation school that's probably somewhere between india which we call the east and greece which we call the west and it was probably somewhere up in uh, the area of persia or something like that but a meditation school where actually what w- went through the mind of people practicing it is actually thoughts but at a mm-hmm. reduced pace So oh, they knew how to pay attention to things and um think things through uh think things through but very slowly on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so that's what came to my mind and uh yeah, I'm sorry it makes me <laughs> digress. I'm not sure what the oh, no, point I love is. It. I love it. So But I'm kind comment. of I'm kind of at, at this point I'm trusting you to kind of uh, put it all together. Course. We're uncorked. It's a good thing. <laughs> yes. So, the, I mean, the yes. opening is about dreams, right? Dreams about catastrophe that turn out to be okay in the end. And what makes them okay is the question. And I have a lot of, I have a lot of commentary on this. The first is actually, you said it was bizarre that you didn't respond immediately in tears to the infant falling alone. Yeah, or is But it? That's, really? It's not at all. That's how grieving goes. The very first stage is shock, denial. You know, when my mother died, I was in such shock about it. I remember... being tearless and feeling okay while they brought sandwiches and like, Oh, this is great. I get free sandwiches and people are coming over and they're giving me their condolences. I'm getting tons of attention. I guess it just doesn't feel that weird when somebody goes. And then one day I woke up and it felt like my heart had been beaten with a thousand baseball bats for two months straight. And I could not walk or move. I could hardly breathe. And that's when the grieving began. So it's mm. very normal that you go into shock. when something truly catastrophic happens. And I think navigating the shock of this world in the midst of catastrophe is not unique to apocalyptic literature, but is actually, especially for those who care about oppression and other phenomena, a reality that defines the world we live in. And this is why somebody like Cornel West loves the blues. And I love the blues as well, but I, I owe this theory of the blues to him, which is, you know, the blues is not about avoiding suffering. It's about making suffering beautiful in a way it eases you out of shock mm. because you're there and you're no longer in denial, but you also see the beauty in what's going on. So managing, interpreting, healing in the midst of absolute catastrophe is so profound. And I had a dream that I'll share, which speaks to this as well, because dreams can be so beautiful. They're worth sharing, which yes. my dream goes like this. I'll never forget it. I had two dreams that were really meaningful to me because you brought up two, I'll bring up two, but mine are less thematically connected. So the burden gets placed back on you. <laughs> so Great. the first dream, I was on a beach and it was a rocky, a half rocky, half sandy beach. And there were ivory dodo birds 
marching one by one off of a cliff into the water next to me, while giant waves were rolling in and fizzing out just before the shore. The woman of my life was before me, but I could only see her hair. I knew that she and I had been together for a long time and would be together till death do us part. But I had no idea who she was, nor did I even have an inkling of a desire to try to figure out who she was. I was merely contented that she was there. And on these waves, great philosophers, including John Rawls, were surfing to their death because the waves were crashing so sharply into the shore, even though they were fizzing out before they reached my feet. So I watched great philosophers and ivory dodo birds die simultaneous to each other, one by way of cliff, the other by way of waves. And I also had the comfort of the lover of my life being with me, who, by the way, does not exist and may never exist. So I just mm -hmm. had that comfort and I woke up and I said, what the heck was that? Because that was way too <laughs> intense, right? Yeah. And my reflection on this dream was very simple. You know, dodo birds are extinct for a reason, they say. And maybe philosophers are sort of going extinct for a reason as well. I think philosophy is on the upswing right now, but too many philosophers have used obscure language, have used obscure techniques, have used unaccessible, undesirable patterns of thinking in order to develop a certain prestige around them that so that they're untouchable by the public. And I think that the longer philosophers I will, do that, I will more, say, I will just yeah. interject quickly. I think that they were not, you know, to take it back to attention and that what happens is that the archetypal philosopher today is just, as we think of it, is just somebody who's like com almost completely disregarding relationship with people. And so you're able to yeah. build this whole kind of life philosophy for yourself and you write it and then people are impressed by your um, rhetoric and and flow in there, but um, they haven't they tried have to no idea make enough to contact with with real people, so it becomes detached and and so on. And people, I think, rightfully rejected that eventually. Um, so I mm -hmm. think that's the that's the cause for the kind of disdain that people have for the for the you know philosophy the 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 archetypal philosopher like sits at his room and doesn't actually have friends, but just, yeah. Whatever becomes overtly elitist inspires eventually a revolution against it. When you take away from the pop, from the masses and give only to a select few, which philosophy has made that horrible commitment of doing that then, and it's not rewarded people who know how to speak in public settings. It's not rewarded people who convert their ideas in ways that are accessible not to the degree that it should. So, you know, it's definitely at risk and it has been for a while because of that habit. And this version of philosophy where there's a rhythm to the language, but nobody knows what you're saying is what I call bad poetry. It's just bad poetry. It's not as good as real poetry, but it's got the same quality of being beyond the immediate grasp without the delivering of stimulating somebody's own insight and their own path because people are so confused by what you're saying they're merely picking up on the sense that what you're saying is meaningful and i think yeah, that's and it's sophistry it's sophistry too because it appeals to a certain aesthetic that people developed in academia which you know if i write this and that the content doesn't matter anymore the form is going to get me um applause from the people who appreciate this kind of form 
and mm-hmm. um, yeah, it just gets more and more arcane and less and less grounded in any in any way, shape, or form. And let me vivify that quickly, and then I'll tell you my second dream. Does that sound good? Sure. Yeah. So the vivification of that was I won't reveal who or in what field, because I, it would if I revealed the field, I'd be revealing who. But I was editing somebody's paper, a very successful person. And I said, look, hey, this line is really beautiful, but there are three very distinct, incompatible interpretations of what it means. In other words, three implications that you have here. And they said, yeah, but that doesn't matter in my field. Ambiguity is fine. And I think ambiguity, if approached intentionally, if you say, look, something like the relationship between the individual and the collective is inherently ambiguous, something like the relationship between our freedom and our constraints is inherently ambiguous. Then you can write in a way that evokes that ambiguity. But if you're writing about something which doesn't necessitate ambiguity and you're doing it ambiguously just because you don't feel obliged to be clear, you should stop considering yourself a thinker. You're not a thinker. You're not an intellectual. You're not helping anybody out. You're just doing bad poetry. And you can make the pivot to doing real poetry and put yourself through that fire Or you can make the pivot to doing real philosophy and put yourself through that fire. But this cozy little artistic moment that you're having is irrelevant to the progress of thought, in my opinion. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is the dream. Are you ready for this? Of course. Okay. So the dream goes like this. And this is a true story, by the way. I'm in the hospital. It's one of my first nights in the hospital in France. And I know I'm going to be there for a long time. I can detect from the way that the tyranny of the psychiatrist, and I mean psychiatrists help a lot of people, but in a clinical setting, especially when you're a patient in a hospital, they're the dictators, the nurses are their, you know, administrators and the actual, because people forget that mental hospitals have a lot of big men that go around enforcing Mm -hmm. things. Like if you don't want to take your medicine, they can strap you down and put the medicine inside of you and stuff like that. So people forget that they have enforcers in mental hospitals, um, which is why I don't like the language about like, oh, if only the police acted like mental health specialists do. It's like, do you have any idea how mental health specialists act? They're very violent towards the patients. So anyway, that being a side note, I'm in there. I know I'm going to be in there for a long haul. And I, and I go to sleep and I have a call back to, uh, a lover of mine who is one of the only people I had a deep and intimate connection with in my life, holding me in a room with cotton drapes, having a breeze go through them so that they kind of danced in the breeze, candles everywhere. And it was not a romantic desire. It was somebody reassuring me that everything would be okay eventually. And within the dream, I fell asleep and I woke up within the dream. And that's kind of like Edgar Allan Poe, life is but a dream within a dream, you know. And I woke Mm -hmm. up within the dream and I remember thinking to myself, thank goodness this wasn't just a dream because I had fallen asleep and woken up. And then I woke up for real and I was devastated. Mm. So I put on my phone to random music and the song that played was In Dreams by Roy Orbison where he talks about only seeing his lover in his dreams and weeping and weeping. And I thought, 
this is almost cruel. Like, it's like my phone knew what I was dreaming about, you know, and mm -hmm. it just clicked, like everything clicked. I'm here. And I, what I thought was, I am going to be alone for a long time. And I'm okay with that, which later down the line, or I don't know how much time we have, but I'd love to give you my, my theory of love at some point, by the way. But uh, go on with whatever you <laughs> want to Just a say. small, concise theory of love. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, pretty concise. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, what it reminds me um, immediately is that, you know, we talked before about uh, freedom in the context mm -hmm. of that. And it kind of brings me to that. And also the, the everything is going to be fine thing. So, yeah, that definitely corresponds with, with my dreams because everything did turn out fine. And, uh, for you as well. And it did. Yeah. To everybody's and, and so, surprise but me. <laughs> and me at this point, but it's easy for me to say. That. <laughs> um Yeah. And about the 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 freedom there, I'd say, you know, now it's just me being uh, poetic and interpreting it, but I think there is something free about Drape's kind of moving dancing in the in the wind you know not controlled by anything they're not um forcefully attached to a bed of any sort or something like that and they're just doing their thing which not necessarily is the intended use for them even but they're just being in the wind and yeah how how does that connect you to the whole subject of of freedom and the experience of suffering tyranny in that uh, mental hospital very profoundly because there was a moment which when i was in indonesia a very mystical moment in my life obviously i was in the in the throes of a manic episode and therefore could be considered quite delusional at this point but that you know william james when he wrote the varieties of religious experience was told oh, most of these people have obvious mental health issues and said yeah but does that mean that their experience is false. You know, does that mean that what they're experiencing doesn't relate to truth at all? At mm -hmm. all? It just, there is no correlation between whether somebody's in what is perceived as a disturbed mental state and whether what they're going through can correlate to reality. Maybe what we consider mentally disturbed has a profound truth to it. You know, there might be, that might be the case. But anyway, I was in Indonesia and this, I was in real life on a bed and there was a, a man who was probably going through his own mental health issues, who somehow thought that I was right about being quite a spiritual being. And he was standing by me and there was actual around the bed linens that were bellowing in the breeze. And mm -hmm. as I was in the bed, I all of a sudden felt this pain overcome me physically to a degree that I'd never felt a pain. And it felt as though for sure I was dying. I knew I was dying. I didn't have any doubt about it. Mm -hmm. And then it lifted out of me and I could feel it lift out of me like a presence coming out of my core being. And I could almost hallucinatorily see it ascend away from me. Whatever it was about me, something about me died that day. And it made me cry a deep and profound kind of why me sequence of tears like why do i have to go through this pain and then it was gone then it lifted right out of me and i think that actually 
something about that moment was for me, the moment I went from being a child to being a man, I've never felt the level of fear that I used to feel in my life ever since I went through that mini death within life, which is a line from Bukowski, you know, there's a death within life and there's not much mm. light, but it beats the darkness. So mm. I went through a death within life in a circumstance very similar to that dream. And I think there's something about liberty in the face of absolute suffering or tyranny or something like that, that requires you to be able to say, I need to let myself die in order to mm. fully live. Mm. And so there was that connection there for me, because if you're unwilling to go through a death within life, whether it's a death of the ego, which can be a violent, devastating experience for many people, or a death of an emotion, or death of the fear within you. If you're unwilling to go through death within life, you're never going to rise out of the darkness. Because frankly, the darkness has its own comfort. At least you know it. So you have to be willing to die and let something go. And that dream that I had about a lover of mine in between the linens, holding me saying it's going to be okay, provoked a memory of that moment of mystical death in Indonesia, which ultimately shaped the rest of my life. Wow. 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 Yeah. I mean, you, uh, you can definitely see the, the thread running through it. So I myself went through a, a sort of death on a, on a psychedelic experience and I've elaborated on that, um, on a different episode. And it's, I'm just mentioning it to, to say that I, I think I've gone through something possibly similar um, but an experience that's even more um, relatable here is that uh, not in a dream I was on an airplane and um, the stewardesses were just starting to give out the the meals to people right so you know they do that once they reached altitude they're quite confident that there are no turbulences and you know people could eat and they're also mm -hmm. not sitting in their seat with seat belts on actually the seat belt sign wasn't even on and all of a sudden they're next to me the plane just drops okay mm -hmm. so my head bangs against the the ceiling of the airplane and everybody's fucking screaming and uh start actually praying and saying it was like you know shema israel which is this jewish prayer of like hear us god it's like mm -hmm. make everything okay um and i look at the eyes of a girl that's across from me in the aisle and she was probably like 14 or something she was young and we look back at one another and we catch a glimpse of each other's faces and we're silent, but we immediately have this understanding and we, and we let out a smile. And mm. it was just one major drop, but obviously like the, the, the air crew was, they were shaken as well. Like this should not happen. And all I could think in that moment is that I had a good life. I had many friends who love me. I have a family who loves me and I love them back. And I'm totally going with this because I'm literally out of control here. It's not like I can save the day or do anything, you know, and I'm at peace with dying right now. And mm -hmm. okay, soon enough, after a minute, like the, the pilot basically goes on the mic and says like, whoops, we didn't see it coming. It's like the radar didn't pick up on these clouds or whatever. So it was a near-death experience in a sense. 
Um, well, not in a sense, because the, the, the imminent death was agreed on by everyone there. So, you know, so what if it wasn't going to happen? It is a near-death experience in perception. And I think that's that you, you can see that in my in my dreams too, which is my mind did not make me not fall or the baby not fall or the rocket not fall. Like it found other ways to um, help me come out unscathed or other people who I love or care about. But mm -hmm. acceptance can really uh, save you in these, in these moments. And that is freeing. That is liberating, like not actually being afraid. You know, if you are tense in then this affects your mood and you're actually probably going to depart from this world in a, in a bad state. Like I'm not saying that I know anything yeah. about an afterlife or have any sort of really opinions on it. Um, but you know, no, just the way that we imagine that. The, that we, uh, the way we imagine the end of our lives is always is like, I wish for myself to be in a bed free of stress with loving mm -hmm. people around me. And there's a reason for that, you know, and there's a, I don't know anything about what happens after, but we all want to go in peace. And I think that only if you find a place where you can be completely accepting and go in peace, then almost paradoxically, it's going to, or not paradoxically, but maybe surprisingly, it's going to make your life much better because you know that death is imminent and it is all around you and it could jump you at any moment. So you better be in that state all the time because you're not going to have the privilege of choosing when to be in that state, you know? Absolutely. So, yeah. So Sarah Coakley, who's a wonderful theologian and philosopher, says life is a meditation on death. And the Stoics have this concept of memento mori that we rehearse for death regularly. Mm -hmm. In our mind, we practice dying over and over again to allow us to live more fully. But I want to explore briefly whether or not it's rational to fear death. I don't think it is. It seems to me rather obvious that if evolution selects for what's going to maximize fitness in terms of propagation of your genes over time, mm -hmm. then being fearless about death is not going to be selected for evolutionarily because you're going to die possibly younger than you should before you have all the children that you could rear and you, or you'll die younger than you could to protect them or whatever. So I think fear of death is just an evolutionary instinct. To me, it's obvious that would be the case. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of evolutionary instincts, we, we trivialize them, but we don't do that with fear of death. Why? I think there are a few reasons. One, there are, there is this idea, which I think we're all deep down terrified about. And uh, Lorenzo Medici, I believe, I'm, I might have the Medici wrong, but it was a Medici. I'm pretty sure it was Lorenzo. Died be in total annihilation emotionally because of this idea, which is hell. There's a part mm -hmm. of us that thinks, well, maybe there's an afterlife. And in that afterlife, there could be either heaven, eternal bliss, or hell, eternal suffering that awaits us. And that possibility of hell is so real to us that the way most people think of death is more like hell than it is like even people who are anti-theistic, anti-religious and so forth. 
Think of death as some kind of an eternal darkness. There is no darkness. There is no light. If you think that there's nothing, if it's a cessation of consciousness entirely, if you believe mm -hmm. that, then there's neither darkness nor light. You're not locked in a room alone suffering, which is how right. a lot of people think about the afterlife. So they imagine it to be hell. This fear of hell, I think, motivates a lot of fear of death. And then there's the evolutionary instinct, which works in collaboration with the fear of hell to sustain how uncomfortable we are talking or thinking about death. But then there's the other side of it, which is the evidence that comes from near-death experiences of people who have these incredible trips they go on when they their heart stops or their body is technically dead and then they come back to their body later and the, generally they don't provide evidence of an afterlife except for in one case it's really fascinating uh this is a case which i i learned about through a behavioral psychologist and i looked into myself of a guy who was in a hospital and his nurse took the weekend off. And while he was in the hospital, he had a near-death experience where supposedly in the afterlife, he saw the nurse who took the weekend off. And she said, tell my parents, I'm sorry that I wrecked the MGB car or whatever. And also told him it's not his time and he needs to go back. And then he goes back into his body. And he tells a nurse what just happened, a different nurse. And that nurse runs out of the room very upset. It was true that this other nurse died that weekend, just before he had his near-death experience. And there is no immediately obvious way he could have known about that, which seems to provide evidence, not of an eternal afterlife, but that there's some sort of an existence which could take place independent of bodily existence. Just by way of the evidence of somebody encountering someone else who had recently died in their near-death experience. So if you want to be optimistic about what happens after death, you can find an abundance of reasons to be optimistic. If you want to be pessimistic, you can find an abundance of reasons to be pessimistic, especially neurological reasons that, you know, you, you manipulate the brain in a certain way through anesthesia and then you have no consciousness. What happens if... You manipulated it all the way to not functioning at all. Why would you have any consciousness and so forth? You can be optimistic or pessimistic, but this irrational fear of death, I think has more to do with hell. It's much scarier to go through your death within life where you continue breathing afterwards than it is mm -hmm. to go through your death by way of stopping your breath entirely to me. So I'm ready to go Same. through another death within life if I have to, but I certainly know how devastating that experience is because I went through it once and I'm not at all afraid of actual death because there's a spiritual side to me, which brings me a sort of optimism, which is different from hope. Optimism is a prediction. Hope is merely an attitude that says whether or not you think things will turn out well, it's worth fighting for what you want. There's an optimism within me, but beyond that, I don't believe in hell. And I think if hell exists, if the theists are right that God exists and hell exists, the most compelling case for what hell is comes from Charles Tolifer, who says hell could be God's love because love can be torturous or divine, depending on how you are or are not able to receive it. In other words, you're in heaven if you're feeling the full force of God's love and you think you deserve it. 
You're in hell if you're feeling the full force of God's love and think you don't deserve it. Nothing is worse than knowing somebody is showering you with love and feeling fundamentally like you do not deserve the love that's coming your way. Now, that version of hell, if God exists, that could exist too. But hell in terms of like demonic torturers catapulting you into flames and stuff like that, that just seems like we need to rid ourselves of this notion. Hell in terms of the traditional understanding of the afterlife as being locked in a dark room with no noise or anything else, that needs to be discarded too. We've got to acknowledge fear of death is an evolutionary impulse. And like many evolutionary impulses that serve us well to propagate our children, it doesn't necessarily serve us well on the overall emotional experience we have. And we should do what we can to overcome it. Yeah, I I really love that at this point we've we've come full circle to really um death and rebirth and um yeah, I'm just planting this flag right now like we're probably not going to get to love this place but uh, uh this time but I'm super happy to record one as early as next week about love so keep that in mind and then what you just said now about you know being showered with love and not feeling um deserving just Personally, thank you for that because I haven't considered that um, that really thought or or relationship um, or that relation to like my uh, depressive episode. And I'm going to think a lot about that because I think there's there's a lot there to to unpack for me. And looking back at history and um, and all that. Um, yeah, with with the rebirth, I completely agree. I share the sentiment with you. Um, I think that at some point I put up a poll on Twitter asking, are you actually afraid of death? Because it's kind of hard for me to imagine that mm-hmm. I, I don't completely understand it when people say they're afraid of dying. And people were like, yes, I'm, I'm afraid of death. And it's something which uh, quite strangely... I really don't seem, it's not easy for me at all to relate with that because much mm-hmm. like you, I feel that I am a Phoenix and that it has happened once and that the time that it happens for real, like you say, is almost uneventful. <laughs> what is it, like what's yeah. there? It's not even an interesting event because it's the end of the story. It's not the end of a chapter, you know? Yeah. It's like Epicurus it's, said, you know, I don't fear death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And he won't, you know, exactly, he exactly, he won't right? if it's a real right? thing. It's like, what, what am I wishing for myself? Obviously, like everybody else, I don't want it to be particularly painful. Like I'm not looking, I'm not looking forward to it, but, um, the end of a book is usually if it's, if it's a complete story, not somebody who's trying to come up with an excuse to come up with a sequel, but the end of a story is not a cliffhanger. It's actually, there's, there's serenity there and that's how I view it, you know, but, Mm-hmm. The cliffhangers are kind of hard to tolerate, right? You have to move to the next chapter and read and see what's there. And yeah, I, I share the sentiment there with you completely. And um, um, yeah, I'm just really happy that this whole conversation kind of was, um, yeah, we had our guardian phoenix watching over us and kind of guiding mm-hmm. us through it because it was by no means structured at all and yet we ended exactly where we should have um ended so yeah that that's it like i'm more than happy to uh to hear if you have anything else in mind to um uh, send me and listeners away with <laughs>
Sure, I do. I have a closing statement then. <laughs> my closing statement is this. You know, I'll never forget when my father told me it's much better that my mother goes before I do because I can live without her and she can't live without me. I think other people's death is much scarier than our own. And the fear of dying mm -hmm. alone makes a lot more sense than the fear of dying per se. So I don't want to trivialize what people go through when they worry about their death or the death of others. I just want to acknowledge that our own death, just as it is, just as such, is mostly an irrational fear. And I want to say that, you know, for anybody listening who might be interested in this, the point of my being here is to have a conversation. And I feel like we did that beautifully, wonderfully, magnificently, and in every way delightfully for me. But I'll just throw my pitch out there that I am a philosophy coach. I'm a struggling grad student. I love having clients. If you feel like <laughs> working with me, work with me. Uh, I do something I almost never do in real life when I coach people. I listen. And I, it's not about my <laughs> philosophy. It's about theirs. So, um, you know, that's my closing sentiment. And I guess I'll say one more thing. If you are in darkness or in doubt, remember that you have an imperishable source of worth within you, that your worth is not dependent upon the judgment of others, that you can exist whether or not you are perceived as glorious and grand, and that everything that you've ever wanted in life remains a possibility so long as you are aware that nobody but you can stop you from getting it. That's my ending remark. That's beautiful. That's beautiful, my friend. Um, yeah, since since you mentioned um, your uh, coaching practice, I'd love for you to also um, tell anyone where you can be found um, online. Great. So I have a, I have a website called ChristophPerot.com. I have a Twitter at Perot underscore Christoph. I have Instagram CM Perot and Perot is spelled P-O-R-O-T. You are welcome to pronounce it uh, in the French or the English way. <laughs> I'm a dual citizen. So my French family would be proud one way, my American the other. And um, I can be easily accessed online. I also have an email cperot at gmail.com. I love hearing from people. And even if you say, well, I certainly would never pay this guy for coaching, but I would love to be in touch, be in touch and uh, write me an email and I would love to respond and have a conversation. Wow. Yeah, Christoph. Well, thank you so much for taking me on this amazing journey. I'm really privileged to be part of it. And uh, if I have to say one last thing, it's really wishing for you, for me, for everyone to be well. And if you want to call it a prayer, call it a prayer. I don't care anymore. Um, yeah, man. Thank you so, so much. And we'll do another one very soon. I love, 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 love.